You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. My name is Brandon. If I haven't met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, really glad to have you with us this morning uh, as we open God's Word. Um, also, I want to apologize up front if I uh, cough during this. Uh, I'm just getting over a little cold. Don't worry, I've been vaccinated, so uh, we're good to go. But uh, thank you for being with us this morning. Um, a friend of mine is a little older than me, and he has a daughter who is 16 years old. And they have decided right now that it would not be wisest for her to have a smartphone. She is the only person in her class who doesn't have one. She has a dumb phone. And the other kids in her class think it is wild that she does not have an iPhone. That it's some inexplicable mystery of the universe. They keep asking and asking her, when are you getting an iPhone? When? I can't believe you don't have one. At first, my friend's daughter didn't love this, as you might can understand. Now she's actually turned it into a way to be different than everybody else, and she kind of revels in it. As my friend was telling me this, I had a few thoughts. One, I'm terrified of my kids becoming teenagers, as many of you are as well. Two, I'm really glad I didn't have an iPhone when I was 16. And three, How does a culture go about deciding when someone is ready to have all of that access in their pockets? How does a culture decide that? I don't know if I have the answers to that question yet, but isn't that a fascinating little case study in human nature and the power of culture that in this one little confined universe of sorts, this classroom, all these kids are looking at this young girl and they are so bewildered And there's this chorus of voices begging her to comply with the standard they have set. Having an iPhone at their age has become so normalized that they can't even wrap their minds around the alternative. Today we're wrapping up our series on the world, the flesh, and the devil. And today we are covering the world. Biblically speaking, the term world has a few different meanings. Sometimes it's talking about the earth. Sometimes it's talking about the people in the world. But in this sense, it means the patterns of the world. So when you hear the word the world, a very small example would be that high school classroom, the culture that exists there, the expectations and belief that exist there, the peer pressures that exist there, the things that have been normalized there. In week one of this series, here's how we defined the world. The sinful patterns of thinking, living, and believing that become normalized in a society. It's a system or pattern of being that is opposed to God. And according to Romans 12, just like that classroom, the world has a conforming effect on us. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So according to the New Testament, there's a way of the world that functions like a current. It conforms you to its image, and it takes you where it wants you to go. Certain beliefs and thoughts and practices become normalized to the point where it can be hard to see things being otherwise. 
I also have different expressions at different times in history. It'll look different in India or in a different time period than it does right now in America. But in any particular time and place, there is a world as the backdrop that is serving as a powerful, conforming influence. It's a more invisible but more powerful version of every kid in class incessantly asking, when will you be like me? I'm sure all of us can think of examples like this if you tried hard enough where the world actually shapes what we wanted, where my desires were formed because of outside influences. Now now they're my desires, but they were actually initiated by the world. Now, in one sermon, it would be impossible to tease out all the different ways the world of 21st century America tries to conform us to its patterns. Uh, We're actually going to do a series in the fall on morality and the Ten Commandments that'll cover a lot of those things that we're really excited about. But today, I simply want us to start to have eyes to see this, to start to ask more questions and be cognizant of the power the world has to conform us without knowing it. I don't want to be overly prescriptive because some of the things we talk about today have some nuance to them. But I do want us to start asking questions that maybe we are not in the habit of asking currently. So if you have your Bibles or Bible app, open up your Bible to John 17, John chapter 17. We're going to look at some some verses where Jesus is actually praying to God the Father for his disciples before his death, resurrection, and ascension. He's trying to prepare them for his departure. So we'll start in verse 14. They'll be on the screen if you want to follow along there. Jesus talking, he says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus came on a rescue mission from outside the world. He calls the devil the ruler of this world where sin and darkness and chaos reign. And he comes to save us so that we might no longer be of the world. Because of who the ruler of the world is, the world hated Jesus, and it says he will, uh, it will hate his disciples too. Jesus would eventually be crucified by the world, and the disciples would eventually be martyred as well, because they were so different from the conforming culture around them that they would eventually be killed. But Jesus prays for their faith to withstand the devil's attacks on them. Verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. In this passage, uh, Jesus is teaching us to live as people who are distinct. And in fact, the Greek word for church is the word ecclesia. And it more simply means called out ones called out ones. So those reconciled to him by faith are called out of the world into union with him. We leave our former identity and nature and citizenship and affiliations behind to follow the way of Jesus. And the words consecrate and sanctify here teach us that we are to be distinctly set apart from the world we find ourselves in. If you grew up around church, you may have heard the phrase in the world, but not of the world. And that comes from these verses here. So just to make what Jesus is saying here as simple as possible, you should be able to walk into any culture and fairly easily recognize, okay, there, there's the dominant culture. 
And here's how they think and operate around what they worship. They think about relationships and sex, how they handle their money, how they parent, how they fill in the blank. And over there, you should go, oh, they are different. Those are the called out ones. They spend their time and money in uniquely different ways. They focus their own attention on distinctly different things. They obviously believe something different from the rest of those people around them. The difference found in the called out ones should be pervasive and obvious. Gathering with God's people on Sundays is inestimably important, but it should go far beyond that, Monday through Saturday and through the course of an entire life, because we have vastly different values and priorities, so our lives should look discernibly and clearly different. So we have this purified, distinct, set-apart group of called-out ones who were reconciled to Jesus, called out of the world or dominant culture they inhabit, and then sent back into that world as missionaries. He's talking to his disciples, but as you read, you'll also see he's talking about us too. He actually starts to pray for us. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So there's something compelling about our called outness, our collective distinctiveness that shows the world their normal is not actually normal, and that God loves them too and wants to call them out of their folly like he did for us. But this breaks down when the church gets colonized or overtaken by the world. When we look just like the world around us, this effect is lost. And I'm not one to pick on pastors in general and not even celebrity pastors, uh, but journalist Ben Sixsmith wrote an article recently about the downfall of a somewhat famous celebrity pastor. It was titled, The Sad Irony of celebrity pastors. And there's some low-hanging fruit there to be sure, as you can imagine, but one part in particular was really weighty. He goes in on not just the celebrityism, but a larger trend of what he calls the with a twist of Christianity trend. I have a, a long quote for you to follow along with me. I think it's, it's worth our time. He, he started out by commenting on this church where this pastor had fallen, which was a kind of a high-fashion neo-Pentecostal church. And he writes this. You can follow along on the screen. There is mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, modish political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. Most people stick with mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex. Touche, Ben. He goes on. We can see the with a twist of Christianity trend elsewhere. Jerry Falwell was a representative of the right-wing, business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalistic self-enrichment and hubristic jingoism. Get back to me if you know what that means, by the way. With a twist of Christianity. Then there are progressive Christians who promote the usual left-wing causes with a twist 
of Christianity. While different in belief, such people share patterns of thought. The former believe secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with money, while the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with bodies. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? Okay, the heat is turning up, but it hasn't boiled yet. Listen to this. He says, I am not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should or should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me uncomfortable for not doing so. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. That stings a little, right? Here's what I'm afraid has happened. I don't have all the data points for this, and I'm just going off my experience and my perspective, but it feels like a couple of decades ago, the idea of the church being different from the world had a bit of a PR problem. Of course, there have always been meaningful and tear-jerking ways that the true church has stood out from the world in any context. But specifically speaking about American Christianity a few decades ago, I feel like somehow the overly reduced picture of standing out from the world as a Christian essentially was reduced to don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, don't date girls who do. God was painted in more of a stodgy light as if he wasn't a big fan of fun in general. There are a couple of problems with this. One, that overly simplistic picture falls woefully, painfully short of the beautiful ways Christians are to stand out in Scripture. We are to be bursting with spiritual vitality and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We should be at our cores the most joyful people on the planet. And two thoughtful Christians began to be like, wait, the scriptures are filled with people enjoying wine and dancing. In fact, Jesus served it on multiple occasions, and the Psalms celebrate dancing with joy to our God. So have we reduced necessary nuance and made a moral standard that would exclude Jesus? But along with some of that thoughtful nuance, I would argue, came another trend and that was that we were just tired of being uncool in the world's eyes. We were just tired of it. So maybe in some ways we just unthinkingly stepped and sway a bit too closely with the world around us, trying to curry some favor with the world, trying to avoid their derision, even if they disagree with our beliefs. A little bit like wanting to be invited to the cool kids' table in high school. And sometimes I'm afraid the unfortunate outcome of all of that is that a sharp journalist would look at some of those Christians and conclude, instead of making me want to become more like you, it looks very much like you want to become more like me. I am not interested in turning us into some disengaged, unrelatable prudes. That's not my aim. But I am afraid that for many American Christians, their non-Christian neighbors would look at their lives and they might think, the things you love don't seem all that different from the things I love. The things you orient your life around, the things you talk about, the ways you spend your money, the things you're most passionate about, 
they don't seem all that noteworthy or uncommon. So I'm failing to see how Christianity is not just an inessential add-on to your life. So here's what I want to do for the rest of our time today. I just want to give us two questions to think about. Two questions to think about. Here's the first one. What is normal in the world that should not be normal for me? What is normal in the world that should not be normal for me? Because being the ecclesia in our culture means that there will be things about our culture that seem utterly normal, but in no way should be normal for us. And I mean this on a far deeper level than the description before. And again, there's no way to give an exhaustive picture or list here. My goal is simply to make you think and start asking this question. Should this thing be normal for me? For us? To be clear, the Amish are not our model here. They are not our model. They have the not of the world part down pat, but not quite the in the world part. But there's something about their practice that I think is really insightful and challenging for us. I actually didn't know this at one point, but did you know that new technologies are actually not forbidden by the Amish community? There are no rules, per se, against progress. It's just that when a new invention comes along, they deeply and thoughtfully consider how it will impact their community. So when something comes along, they literally use us, surrounding Americans, as their guinea pigs and see how it affects us. They see what it does to us first, and then they will have a community meeting to discuss if they would like to adopt it. For example, they decided no for cars, which is a little bit wild to think about. A few years ago, a journalist asked an Amish man why they made this decision, and he answered by saying, have you seen what they did to your society? And the journalist was like, um, no. (laughs) What are you talking about? And the Amish man replied, and he said, well, do you know your neighbors? Do you know your neighbors' names? And the writer had to be honest and say, no, no, I don't. That's fascinating to me, but it makes sense when you stop and think about all the implications. Like, do you see how far we live away from our friends? How many of us can walk to our friend's house? All of this relational distance is actually, in some way, the product of automobiles. And I have no desire or intention to get rid of my truck, but there's something to glean from there. Because there is a clear example of a community with distinctly different values that meaningfully affect their way of life. And maybe most importantly, there's a sense of prophetic distance there where the community is ruggedly aware that what's normal out there will not necessarily be normal in here. I'm afraid that prophetic distance is underformed in the American church. Because the thing about the world is that it's powerful, it's persuasive. You don't know the current is moving you. 
And many times we just get caught up in whatever flow we find ourselves in. And we don't just stop and ask the question, wait, should this be normal for us? Consider the entertainment choices that are incredibly normal in our culture. If we truly have different baseline values about what content is healthy for us, about sexuality, then should we Netflix differently than the world around us? Should we HBO differently than the world around us? What if instead of uncritically accepting any form of entertainment, we stop to ask the question, wait, what is this normalizing? And what will happen to the church if this becomes normalized here? What will it do to us? Think about technology usage. It's aggressively normal to always be swiping, clicking, viewing, typing. We are hooked up to the digital IV at almost all times. We carry around our adult pacifiers. And our devices start to feel like appendages, like we aren't whole without them. And this causes us all too often to be distracted and frazzled or even zombie-like at times. But as people of Jesus, we value peace and presence and engagement. We want to truly see others on the deepest level possible, just as he did. To have the ability to be a non-anxious presence empowered by the Spirit of God who births supernatural peace, love, and joy in us. We see what the digital addiction and social media does to us and to those around us. We notice the profound links to mental health problems and overall life satisfaction. So we should be cautious should have some prophetic distance. What's normal out there better not be normal in here if we are to be distinct. Through Jesus, we have an opportunity to be called out of all of that, to be unhurried, presence, to have an uncommon depth and maturity to us. What if that's an area for someone like the writer of that article where, where he to be around you would think, man, there's something different about you. You're more present, more engaged, less anxious. It's normal in our world to run yourself into the ground with busyness. You will not get any flack for that. Should that be normal for us? It's normal to build your own spiritual buffet of beliefs here. That should not be normal for us because Scripture is our authority. It is normal to allow your kids' extracurriculars to erode any meaningful involvement in your faith community. You will be par for the course in that. You won't stand out a bit. Should that be normal for us? It is normal to gossip and call it processing here. Should that be normal for us? It's aggressively normal to get into your ideological tribes and just talk about how crazy and maybe even evil everyone else is. That should not be normal for us. Jesus actually ends this passage by talking about the unity of the church being deeper than any other distinctive. We should constantly be looking at things and patterns around us, aware of our temptation to be pulled into them, and ask the Spirit, should that be normal for me? We should phone differently than the world around us. We should Netflix differently than the world around us. We should speak differently from the world around us because we've been called out of the pattern of the world. 
What's normal for the world should not necessarily be normal for us. And again, I'm not trying to overprescribe behaviors, but if the differences in some of these areas are not clearly discernible, then we need to ask some questions, right? And the second question in light of all this, what isn't normal here that should be normal for me? What isn't normal here that should be normal for me? Because here's the thing, Jesus was not normal in any way. He was mesmerizingly abnormal. He was different. His life was full of constant prayer to his father. When he spoke, he often quoted the words of scripture. He regularly withdrew from people to spend time alone with his father. Fasting was a regular practice for him. His life was oriented around these practices and his communion with God as the perfect human, the second Adam, radiated out from him. And people flocked to him with wonder. People constantly remarked that his teaching had authority they hadn't heard before. There was no question he stood out from the crowd. He explains why in John 8, verse 23, he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You were of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus emphatically declares, I am not from here. In fact, the most famous sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, is framed up by Jesus saying, you have heard this, I tell you that. Like a messenger from a foreign country, he upends the collected wisdom of the day. In Mark 4, he even sleeps soundly on a boat, rocked by a storm, seemingly unaware that in such a situation, it's incredibly normal to freak out. He stops the wind with his voice and asks his disciples non-rhetorically why they were so afraid. They marveled at his abnormalcy. So in other words, Jesus came to create a new normal, to show what the perfect human in communion with God was supposed to look like. By saving us, he means to fashion us into the same kind of redeemed abnormalcy. And the way we follow in his footsteps is to normalize all of the things in our lives that were so normalized in his communion with the Father. The world normalizes sinful and unhealthy patterns, but we are trying to normalize godly things. And if we do not normalize the things that he did, then we should not expect the same outcome. Honestly, we have a lot to celebrate here. Uh, some of your neighbors asked you what you did this morning, and you told them you went to a gathering to worship God with his people. Some of them would probably at least think, why? Like maybe 50 years ago in America, uh, being a part of a church gained you some social capital, but that is changing fast. Prioritizing participation with God's people on Sundays is wildly unpopular and difficult and unique. We have people here who serve until their feet hurt. 
We have people who are radically generous in beautifully countercultural ways and allow us to exist as a church. People who show up week after week to sing truth to themselves and to their neighbor here until both of them believe it. People who confess and repent of their sin instead of hiding it. And that is definitely abnormal in our culture. But let me tell you, there is a reason why we repeat ourselves so often. There's a reason why we harp on our member covenant practices that we've all agreed to, because the tides pulling us away from doing all of those things are incredibly strong. It sometimes feels like if we were to stop rowing that boat for just a few minutes, we'd collectively be halfway back to where we started. Those things are just abnormal So it's worth checking in to see if you were actually following Jesus counterculturally in his abnormalcy. For example, how different is the way you spend your time from your non-Christian neighbor? If they observed your life for a week, would they walk away thinking your life is meaningfully different from theirs? Would they see you in the scriptures praying for friends and neighbors fervently, checking on people in your life group, arranging times to build relationships with those far from Jesus? Or would they possibly conclude that your life looks so similar to theirs that it doesn't pique their interest? What about if that same person observed your family dinners and conversations? Would they notice any difference in what you talk about with your kids than your non-Christian neighbor? How about the drive to school? Do you take time to engage your kids' hearts spiritually about their day and pray for them? Or how about the way you use your home for hospitality? How would this hypothetical and potentially a little creepy spectator judge the way you forgive people? Do you forgive people radically different from the non-Christians around you? Does the gospel drive your forgiveness of others because you've been forgiven for more than you'll ever have to forgive? Would you ever be caught intentionally fasting from anything for spiritual purposes? How different is the way you spend your money from your non-Christian neighbors? And I don't mean when you're checking out at Target and they ask you if you want to donate a quarter for quarters for kids. I mean, is your life marked by sacrificial uncommon generosity for the kingdom of God? Do you give to the mission of God through the church, to missionaries, to Christ-focused poverty initiatives? Are you abnormal in the way that Jesus was abnormal? And are you normalizing the things of God that allow you to become a new kind of normal like him? If you're anything like me, uh, you may be hearing all of this and thinking, well, I've got some things to pray about. (laughs) Got some things to think about. I'm aware that this might feel like a lot, and I hope you know that sermons are convicting for us who preach them as well. Because honestly, I could go through a list of these questions, and my honest answers would be, no, I'm not different enough from the world. I'm not. I have a long way to go in this area or that area. So as we end, I just want to leave you with a few parting encouragements. First, 
Jesus died for your worldliness. He died for your worldliness. When Jesus went to the cross, he died for all of our sins, including the deep-seated worldliness that can still be found in us. If you were in Christ, meaning you've trusted in him alone to make you righteous before God, then every sin, past, present, and future has been 100% paid for. And in this great exchange, you have been imputed the spotless righteousness of Christ, and you stand before God as if you've never once succumbed to the devil, the flesh, or the world. Whatever failures of being like the world that are running through your mind have been paid for sufficiently by the blood of Christ. Second, Jesus conquered the world. In this same dialogue with his disciples, he would tell them something they needed to hear. He would say, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So when faced with an invisible enemy as influential as the world, that's a beautiful word for us. Don't be overwhelmed by the forces set against you, but rather take heart, have confidence and courage because he has overcome the world and its pull and power. He defeated what we could never defeat. Not only that, but Jesus gives us his spirit. In the very same teaching, Jesus tells the disciples that the power they will need will come from the Holy Spirit, given to all who trust in Christ. So if you are in Christ, you've been given the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So there's no place for defeated thinking or negativity. There's no place for, I can't do this because you have the spirit who already has done what you can't living inside of you. Through the power of God's spirit, you are no longer captive to the world's forces and demands. It has no power over you. You are not some hopeless captive. You share in the glorious victory of Christ over the world. He has given us his spirit to help us see what is so hard to see, to lead us into all truth and to help us become beautifully abnormal just like him. And then lastly, number four, we fight the world together. Take another look at the prayer Jesus prays for us in this passage. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and I that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. To be this compelling counterculture of called out ones, we have to do all of this together as one. You will not fight the world successfully on your own. That's not the way it works. The power of the world is that everyone seems to be doing the same thing, so it's all normalized to me. I don't even notice some of it. And what I do notice no longer seems that bad because everyone is doing it. So it is imperative that I have a group that normalizes the things of God together so that I can even begin to notice the patterns of the world are not simply the way life is. The way you fight the world is through full identification with a counterculture that normalizes righteousness. And you better not just be tangentially a part of, but immersed in a group that normalizes the things of God, or else you'll get swept away by the currents you can't 
even see. All of this is what we're trying to do here. We are trying to follow Jesus together as a unified group who normalizes the things of God, who refuses to let what's normal out there be normal and here. If you were a newer around here, this is what we're inviting you into. Hop in with us. The devil is a powerful enemy. The flesh is a powerful enemy. The world is a powerful enemy. But because of the work of Christ, they are all defeated enemies, raging while they flame out. They are all on borrowed time. Jesus invites us to walk in his victory over them, not just when we die, but right now. Through the power of the Spirit indwelling the unified, radiant, distinct church that he purchased with his own blood. Please pray with me.